You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys Podcast, and I'm excited to have Senate Chaplain Barry Black on the line, author of Nothing to Fear. How you doing today? I am blessed, Billy. Well, I am blessed as well, and, and part of the reason is I had a chance to hear your speech a few weeks back at the prayer breakfast, and um, you know, after as I was listening to it, and I always go to the prayer breakfast a because I love to go. I think it, it's great, but b I'm always looking for really good inspirational stories that we can we can highlight. And the minute you started talking, I was like, this is a great, <laughs> this is going to be a great story, and it was. People really reacted to what you had to say. And I think it's because the substance hit on a lot of different fronts where we, we are right now, I think, culturally. Um, and so I wanted to, I first have to ask you, because I'm just fascinated by the fact that you've been a chaplain now. You've been the Senate chaplain for 14 years, which it's a long time. Um, and before we get into that, I wanted to just start by asking, what what does a typical day look like as the Senate chaplain for you? Well, I don't think, Billy, there's really a typical day because (laughs) you're like a pastor who is tending a flock of 7,000 people. So the challenges that the people face, you seek to take care of and uh, help them meet and and to support them in a pastoral way. I, I pastor not only the 100 senators and the members of their families, but... Uh, many, many staffers and and others who work on the Senate side of Capitol Hill. I do Bible studies uh, five days a week. Wow. I do spiritual mentoring classes. I do workspace visitation. Um, I do hospital visitation when lawmakers or others are in the hospital. I officiate at funerals and memorial services and weddings. I facilitate for seasonal observances for not only Christians, but for non-Christians. I coordinate a guest chaplains program. So it's like being the pastor of a 7,000-member church without an associate. It can be quite challenging and very, very interesting because no, no two days are quite alike. So basically what you're saying is you never sleep. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like a... A really intense um, schedule and an amazing opportunity, but but yeah, I mean that because you probably I would imagine you don't have, as you said, an associate pass. You're kind of doing all of this yourself, and there's so many layers to it from from what it sounds like. Um, l- let me ask you this, because you've been doing this since 2003, I believe. So you have seen a number of administrations now come through. Um, what are some of the changes, and not just necessarily political changes, but some of the environmental, cultural changes you've observed in this role with Congress over the last 14 years? Well, I think when I first came in 2003, there was a much greater preoccupation with uh, 9-11 and uh, Iraq and um, Afghanistan and the the challenges that we were facing there. I came as a retired uh, two-star admiral, so I was very well connected with the military, and so there would be questions from the uh, the chairman of various committees regarding uh, defense matters, because they knew that I was very 
knowledgeable regarding that and also very well connected. And then I think basically as things unfold, the senators who simply are representing people begin to reflect the concerns of the people. So whatever you see going on in the world and playing out in our news cycle inevitably becomes a part of uh, of the concern. I remember when a young man and his wife came to the Senate uh, looking almost like teenagers by the name of Obama and uh, <laughs> that whole phenomenon and getting to know him and giving orientations to a variety of senators. Uh, I remember in 2008 when five of my senators were running for the presidency and the interesting experience of interacting with them as that unfolded. Uh, so that would be like pastoring a church where five of your members are running for the presidency. <laughs> you know, that's a very interesting phenomenon. So, um, no, it, it, it just reflects my, the, the, the issues reflect what's going on in, in the nation. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting and to me, fascinating front row seat to history. Yeah, and I want to I want to get into your book, Nothing to Fear. But I mean, I, one of the things that fascinates me about your role, I mean, you're a human being. You have theological, political, social views like everybody else does. You're in this role where, let's face it, I know behind the scenes there's a lot of you know kind moments between people on different sides of the aisle. But the fact is, it can be a really vicious. Um, <laughs> you know, public at least display, how do you navigate the toxic partisanship and, and how do you make sure it doesn't get in the way of the work that you're doing, A, with these different people, but B, and having some of your own views that you, I would imagine at moments have to kind of put to the wayside to address people in the way that your role requires? Well, I think, first of all, Billy, God equips you for the doors that he opens. You know, Daniel one seventeen talks about how God equipped it equipped Daniel and his friends and the ability to learn new languages, understand literature, uh, the literature of Babylon, and gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. So you would ask Daniel and his friends, you know, this is challenging. How do, you, how do you do that? Well, God had equipped them for the doors that he opened. It's like saying to LeBron James or Kevin Durant or an NBA <laughs> basketball player, how do you guys just run up and down the floor like you know? They <laughs> they they've got some equipment to um, to work with for one thing. Um, the second thing is when you understand the nature of the legislative process as adversarial, uh, it's very very helpful. It would be like uh, desiring kumbaya moments in the courtroom. When you go into a courtroom, you know that the prosecutor. There's a defense attorney. <laughs> They're colliding stories, and there's going to be a slugfest. There's going to be attempts to convince convince the jury, um, at least in one day, or the judge, that my my position should prevail. Well, that's basically what you have in the legislative branch. You have, for the most part, two parties who have different presuppositions regarding how government best serves the people. And they're passionate patriots. They gather together at a prayer breakfast, 25 or 30 of them each week, both sides of the aisle, joining hands. They gather together at a Bible study the next day. So they are, you know, passionate 
believers and patriots. But when they get in the chamber and they're debating, they make their case like a competent attorney would do so, and then they vote. And sometimes you have a gang of where uh, the two sides decide we've got to do something creative to keep uh, the majority from <laughs> from doing something that may not be as helpful as the majority may think it is. But they're pretty much friends. I mean, they they have lunch together. They have dinner together. Uh, like lawyers, you know, who slug it out in the courtroom. Hey, what are you doing this evening? So it's not nearly as, uh, I guess, uh, it's not nearly as cynical an environment and, and difficult an environment as a lot of people think. One of the one of the things that I think, because that's the political front of it, which is really interesting, and not to sound like the Freedom From Religion Foundation or an atheist, because I'm not, I'm a Christian, but one of the things that always gets me thinking is how so many people, and this isn't just people in Congress or in the Senate, people in general will pray about things and they will come away and they will say they feel as Christians that God is leading them in these two totally different directions on almost every issue. And it makes you wonder in a theological sense, and I, and I would love your thoughts on this, not to get too deep into it, but you know, how does this happen where we have really good people on both sides of the aisle who feel they're being led in two totally different directions on any particular issue? Like, what, Does that ever boggle your mind? Because I would imagine you're seeing that more than most people are in your role. Well... Lincoln in his second inaugural address, uh, which I think is the greatest inaugural address ever given, says both sides pray to the same God. You know, so obviously God's response cannot satisfy both sides. You know, uh, the North and the South were both praying that uh, uh, you know they they would be victorious. So, um, you know, there's a poem that says God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, God speaking, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. I play chess. Sometimes in chess, you have to do something counterintuitive. Uh, it's a nuance game where the weakest piece on the board, a pawn in the end game can be promoted and transformed into the most powerful piece on the board, a queen. And so if, if you understand that, you will sacrifice all kinds of things in a counterintuitive way. So I think the, the way we dealt with uh, two sides with very different presuppositions, praying and being led by God is to always end the prayer uh, with the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, let your will be done. And when the will of God is your ultimate desire and the destination toward which you are striving, then you're, you're comfortable with however things play out, regardless of how you feel uh, you are being motivated to, to pray, you know. I want the will of God to be done, and it's, 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 it's as simple as that. It was the will of God in Acts chapter 16 for Paul and Silas to be in that jail at Philippi, and they had the right attitude, and the, and the head guy, the warden of the jail, 
came to Christ as a result of that. It was the will of God that Joseph was sold into Egypt by his crazy homicidal brothers because God intended for Joseph to become prime minister of of Egypt. And, and Joseph later said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, I'm sure when Joseph was traveling on that on that camel with the band of Ishmaelites down into Egypt uh, in Genesis 37, he didn't think this is the will of God for my life. No, he wanted to go home. But in retrospect, and very often only in historical retrospect, do we see uh, the will of God playing out. We, we discover that the transcendent deity is playing chess uh, while we're playing, while we're playing checkers, and, it, and and as I look at the unfolding of even civil rights, I look at 1857, uh, the Dred Scott decision, followed in 1896 by Plessy v. Ferguson, which institutionalizes segregation and, and Jim Crow for decades, and then Thurgood Marshall's Paint v. Sweat, and then Brown v. the Board. They all line up like pieces on a chessboard that make, you know, God uses these things, I think, to to accomplish his ultimate purpose. And that is that people will be able to live together as brothers and sisters and not die together as fools, to quote Martin Luther King. I love that. No, and it's, uh, I mean, there's just so much happening right now in the country. And I have one more question before we talk about your book, um, because it ties into this, but what concerns you about what's happening culturally, spiritually in this country right now? Because we've had a lot of, I mean, this, the last year has been total chaos in my view um, in terms of where we are. And I think there's a lot of confusion, but I'd love to get your take on what you feel is concerning maybe um, or encouraging about, about culture and spirituality in America today. Well, you know, I am the glasses half full type of person. And my book, as you, as you pointed out, uh, is entitled Nothing to Fear. Okay? <laughs> and First John chapter 4 says, there is no fear in love, because perfect love casteth out fear. And then Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, have no anxiety about anything. Wow, what a command, Billy. <laughs> okay, I mean, God basically commands us, have no anxiety or concern about anything, but pray about everything with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, verse 7 says, that transcends human understanding will guard your heart and mine in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty four, each day has enough trouble of its own. You have to learn to live in daytight compartments. In that same chapter, he said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And yet Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. The birds don't sow or reap, and yet he feeds them. And and so you, you, you know, I'm, my focus is to fulfill the purposes of God for my life in my generation. Acts thirteen thirty six. So I I focus on that, and I, I hate to say it, but I don't worry about it very much because I I literally have nothing to fear. I love it. I love that. Well, what? So let me ask you in a related note. Why Why did you write the book Nothing to Fear? What was it that that made you feel this was an important topic to tackle right now? 
Well, I was, uh, Billy, I was fasting and praying uh, for six months before the election. Okay? And my focus was, let your will be done, however this plays out. But I was doing intermittent fasting. So for six months, I, I just basically ate one meal a day. Uh, and about halfway through, three months in, I was reading through Matthew and uh, came across, again, the verse where Jesus says to his disciples, I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. And for some day, for some reason that day, it seemed crazy to me. I mean, that seemed like an absurd assertion. What, you know, you're sending a baby sheep, not just <laughs> to a wolf, which could eviscerate the sheep, but into the midst of plural wolves, you know. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> so I wrestled with why would a good shepherd do that? I had my laptop on, you know, on my lap, and I'm tinkering with it. And at the end of the day, I had 50 pages. Okay. And I looked at the strategy that Jesus gave his disciples, seven principles which the book uh, elucidates and uh, expounds on. And Jesus was basically saying, you know, you've got to do a reality check, know the, the predatory world in which you are living, and then you have to develop a tough mind and a tender heart. There are so many people of faith who have tender hearts, but they're lacking a tough mind, and they get they get taken advantage of. Joseph had a tender heart. He thought he was living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and his brothers almost killed him, okay? So you need a tough mind and a tender heart. Jesus said, you've got to be wise as snakes and innocent or harmless as doves. So I worked with that, and God basically, I think he just downloaded it in my spirit, and I was blessed by it, and uh, and I wanted to share it uh, with the nation, <laughs> and the world. And uh, so I called my publisher and explained what was happening. We did not know how the election would turn out, but we did know that we could thrive in a predatory world. And of course, the subtitle is Principles and Prayers for Thriving in a Threatening World. And so it, it just came, it flowed. It was one of the easiest books I have ever written and I did not know how apropos it would be, but uh, it certainly, uh, by God's grace, uh, I think is spot on. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, you and everybody else. Nobody knew how that election <laughs> was going to shake out. But, you know, it's it's we live in interesting times. And I think your message about having nothing to fear couldn't come at a better time because I do think so many of us since I mean, forever. Right. But since 9-11, I think that fear has been a constant and it sort of ebbs and flows and. Um, the source of that fear changes. I think there's a lot of uncertainty on both sides about where we are and where we're going. And so I love that that idea of let's all pause for a minute and focus here um, on what's important. And I wanted to ask you one other thing, and then I'm going to let you go because you've, you've given me a lot of time and I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating is this debate about the separation of church and state and how, you know, some people say faith needs to be totally removed. I tend to think that's not a possibility because human beings um, are complex and faith is an intricate part of our lives. And so politicians are going to 
you're electing the whole package, and part of that is the faith of the person and what they stand for and who they are. Um, but I wanted to ask, in your view, why you believe it's important for the U.S. to have a chaplain such as yourself in the role that you're in. Well, as you probably know, at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, they reached an impasse. And Benjamin Franklin stood and said, uh, gentlemen, I'm a very old man, but I have lived long enough to know that if a sparrow cannot fall without God knowing it, that a republic cannot rise without his assistance. And Franklin suggested that they start praying. And eventually they did, after debate, as you might expect. And uh, uh, one of the first acts of the new legislative branch uh, in 1789, two years later, was to establish a chaplaincy. It actually predates the Establishment Clause to to the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So it makes it clear just the timing of uh, the establishment of the chaplaincy and the Establishment Clause, which is what uh, most people focus on when they're talking about separation of church and state, which is a phrase, by the way, that does not appear <laughs> in, the, in the Constitution. It uh, appears first in an 1802 letter of Thomas Jefferson to Danbury Baptist and really has very little to do with separation of church and state, if you, if you read the letter. But the, the reality is that they knew we needed uh, supernatural guidance that righteousness is a national security issue. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so they wanted a, they wanted a separation because they didn't want an official state religion, uh, governmental religion like they had in England, Church of England, uh, you know, but they, they wanted God in government as well. And so on the day that the Establishment Clause was written, a chaplain prayed, and when it was voted on, a chaplain prayed that day, and prayer has continued almost uninterrupted since that time. And of course, the Supreme Court, 1983, Marsh v. Chambers, uh, said history and tradition make it clear that the framers did not see legislative chaplaincy as a breach of the Establishment Clause and that they wanted a spiritual component to government. So I think it was just people being who they are. So they're, they're people of faith throughout our nation, and these people of faith go into our various branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial, and they want to bring their faith with them because... Their faith sustains them and enables them to survive. And so um, we need a separation of church and state. We don't need an official religion. We don't need to say America is this kind <laughs> of nation. You know? And we need to be accepting of the religious traditions of others. But we certainly need an ability to have contact with the transcendent. Absolutely. Well, listen, this has been great, and I so appreciate you coming on today. We're going to make sure we link out to the book so people can grab copies of it, and we would love to have you back sometime soon. I'd love that, Billy. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. God bless.
Church Boys.